Lag is lag, sir. You can't get her without it. No, I know. Yes, yeah, so that's another thing. The Apple Watch is another thing that we have to turn on to silent when we do podcasts because it just bzz and well, I suppose the buzzing is okay, but the uh, the actual pinging is is a bit annoying. Yeah, where do you turn it off? So it's in a glance. <laughs> I just found it. You you swipe up and then slide to the left until you find it. Oh. How did I not find that? And you can also, there's a button there to ping your phone if you've lost your phone. Oh. If your phone is in reach, which, oh, there it is. Crikey. Wow. Look at that. That is very cool. Excellent. Now that I've turned that off. So I don't think that I've ever heard you talk about this before on a podcast, Aaron, but... Not only did you have a Millennium Falcon of your mantelpiece, <laughs> mm, which I do. is pretty spectacular, but you also had a Smurf bathroom. You're airing dirty laundry. Did they make it into the new house? Yeah, we, we actually built a special bathroom in the new house uh, to be the Smurf bathroom house. Uh, Smurf bathroom, re- ready for the minions. I think there's like 550 uh, Smurfs. So You have 550 Smurfs? I don't, but my wife does. <laughs> Uh, uh, wow (laughs) it is a sight to see jared to be honest i walked in there and um and i had had the guided tour of the house and it's a room unlike any that you've ever seen it it creates a lot of uh performance anxiety for people because you've got all these eyes watching you while you're trying to go to the bathroom it's a little too much for some i just love that you've made it portable that's just awesome Sadly, my apes collection has not made it out of the home office um, and into the rest of the house because Sue set up a she set up a perimeter and she guards it. So any apes related stuff is just not allowed to leave my office now. I did think maybe some of the more expensive, more the more exotic stuff might kind of creep into the living room, but no, no, she's having none of it. Got to draw the line somewhere. Do you collect any plastic crap, Jared? Any action figures? No. No, 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 I don't. Um, we just have the normal sort of towels and soaps in our bathroom. Sorry. <laughs> Do you steal them from hotel rooms? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I haven't, um, I haven't bought shampoo or soap in about five years. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is in little bottles. <laughs> you don't so. have to have action figures just in the bathroom, though, to be honest. I mean, you can have them in other rooms in the house. They're not just there to play with while you're on the loo or in the bath. Huh. It's true. I mean, people do, I'm sure. I'm taking notes. Did you not have, because you're a man of a certain age like me, you know, did you not have... I, I'm definitely a man of a certain age. Did you have <laughs> the Star Wars action figures when in 1977 or 78 or whenever it was that the first film came out? Did you have those original, like Luke Skywalker with the light, lightsaber? No, I was never an action figures kind of kid. And in 1978, I was 18 years old. So, you know, I was sort of beyond that sort of stuff to begin with, but... And the first Star Wars came out in 76, right? Is that right? 77. 77, yeah. So I was 17, yes. 17 years old at that point. No, I was not, I was not that kind of, of fanatic. So I, I would say not. It was not my, my interest. 
Now, suppose you were just that little bit older. How old was I in 77? I was 12 in 77. So, um... Yeah, so that's, that's a, 12 is an age where that sort of thing would, would happen. But I, even when I was 12, I didn't, I didn't really do the action figure thing. I don't think um, there were action figures before Star Wars, really. I mean, in terms of, you know, merchandising on a wide scale, I don't think there was anything. Much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, G. we I had G.I. Joe. Joe. Oh, yeah. I see, we didn't have that over here. We had Action Man. Mm. Action Man. That sounds so generic. It was. And you could get him. It was basically like a muscly <laughs> doll. And you could dress him up in soldier costumes. The Nazis were particularly, uh, you know, particularly popular in, in the UK. <laughs> I remember having a tank that you sat your, your action figure in. And um, as the years progressed, the action man, and I'll find a clip for the audio. Action man. Now with eagle eyes that actually move. On the lookout for action. Up in the mountains. Down in the jungle. He drops from the skies. And rises from the depths. He's all action. Look out for all these fantastic uniforms specially designed for Action Man. And his eagle eyes. The Action Men action got man. a little bit more. You can Google them. They got a little bit more kind of technologically advanced. So at some point you had um, Action Men with gripping hands, which were like little rubbery fingers that always used to break off after about a week. So he couldn't wow. really hold his weapon. We had Stretch Armstrong. Oh, no, I remember Stretch Armstrong. <sighs> Action Man's looking pretty cool. I'm, I'm Googling him here. Now he just fights aliens. He just fights aliens now. In, now in, he just fights aliens. Yeah, it was not so good. I mean, you know, in the 70s or early 80s, when he used to fight Nazis or Soviets or something. It was much, much more, much more interesting. <laughs> and he had a parachute that you could drop him out of the bedroom window, and it would never work. It would always end just like smacking him in the face. <laughs> uh, we digress. I suppose I should officially introduce you both to the listeners of the show. Yeah, because we, we actually know each other. <laughs> just, you do. What, you and the listener? No, us, uh, uh, us and each other. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, we do. So you don't need, yes, you don't need to introduce us to each other. But then for the listeners. For the listeners, for the loving listeners. Hello, listeners. Yeah, there's only the one. If you're listening, Ian. So this week, who better to be spending an hour or so with but director of UX at MailChimp and author of Designing for Emotion, published via Book Apart, Aaron Walter. Hello. 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 Yeah. Hello there. And because it just gets better and better, founder of User Experience Engineering and co-founder of Center Center. That's a school that I was reading about that prepares students for user experience design jobs. Jared Spool. Oh, man, yes. what, what a lineup. What a lineup for today's show. I'm going to let you say that over again. What a lineup. Your podcast. No, uh, that it's user interface engineering. Did I say user interface engineering? No, you said user experience engineering, oh. which is okay. Uh, uh, back in the days when we had receptionists, no one ever calls us anymore, but, but we used to have a receptionist. Uh, uh, we never had a receptionist who on their first day didn't say, answer the phone, user face engineering. But we actually go by UIE now, so you can just go with UIE. Well, I should, re I should reread that sentence. I'm not going to edit it out. I'll just reread the sentence for politeness. And yes. just because it gets better and better, founder of UIE and co-founder of Center Center, which is a school that prepares students for user experience design jobs, Jared Spool. 
Yes, that's me. Did you like it better the second time? I thought it was a bit smoother. I did like it better the second time. Yes, no, that was very good. That was very good. I, I think practice makes perfect. It does. It does. <laughs> I bet if I told people in advance that I was going to talk to you two on the show this week, they would probably think that we were going to talk about user experience or design or maybe education or, or something like that. But I don't want to do that today. <laughs> okay. Because, you know... <laughs> user experience yeah, but we're not a big but anyways right oh it's not that it's just branding really. um, <laughs> i want to talk about a few other interesting things because you know there's more to us than just you know the day job and i thought that it would be really good if we could talk about the art of public speaking today and i don't just mean speaking at conferences which i know that's a thing that all of us do kind of fairly regularly, but just presenting in general, maybe it's presenting an idea to people at work or pitching an idea to, you know, creative concept or something to a client. And I thought that we could talk about maybe how to prepare and how to structure a talk and maybe some tips on presenting. You know, I just thought that you'd be great for this conversation because even though you've got very different speaking styles, because I've seen you speak, you both speak many times. I reckon that you're in the top five speakers in the web industry. And who better to talk about this than you two? Wow. Okay. Well, All you right. know, I've seen most now. You know, I think I've got my favorites. You know, I've got people that I think are brilliantly natural or, you know, produced speakers. Veen would have to be one, I suppose. I think Veen's an excellent speaker. He's amazing. Veen is, Veen is a fantastic speaker. I would probably put Jeremy Keith in that class as well. I sit through Jeremy's talks in complete awe of how just brilliant and well thought out his presentations are. Well, I'll have to edit this bit out because I don't want him listening and realizing no. that he's just blowing smoke up his um, up his shirt. No, because he's intolerable that way. No, I know. You just he just can never. He'll huff duff it or something, and then it will just be too yeah. much. <laughs> Yeah, he'll just play it over and over and over again. It'll be like his ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> now, you see, Jeremy is a, I think he's a very natural speaker, and I don't really know what Jeremy's kind of preparation modus operandi is. But I do know that other people that I have seen do brilliant talks are often extremely well prepared. And I think that when you talk about somebody like Veen, for example, I mean, he's very slick, very rehearsed without it seeming kind of you know over rehearsed or, or stilted um and there's obviously some things that people can do to improve the you know improve their speaking because I'm, i've seen some really really great talks over the years and i've also seen some really terrible ones not necessarily that the content was bad just because of the way that people presented it wasn't as good as it could have been so maybe we could actually talk about that for today yes I agree. Approved. There was a huge long pause there. I thought you were like, you know, you'd gone off to get a cup of tea. I was shocked you were asking our opinion. It's your show. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Mine isn't the only opinion that matters. That's what my wife tells me every day. <laughs> well, the, between the two of you, you, we can talk about whatever the two of you would like to talk about. <laughs> so presenting and talking about how people prepare for a talk. I mean, there's a couple of ways that I can think of in terms of preparing. One I've been doing a lot more recently, which is to 
think of what I say much more in terms of a script, you know, and I sit and write a script. We might talk about that in a minute. But then the other, which I think most people do, um, and I used to do this, which is to sort of prepare an outline and then prepare the slide deck. And people spend, you know, such a long time working on slide decks. And they use them not just for what the audience sees as like an illustration, but they're using them like a, almost like a visual cue for what they're going to say next. And like a little reminder as to the, you know, the, the, the bullet points through the talk. I'm a big believer in not putting a lot of words on the screen. That the screen is sort of like a visual illustration of the, the ideas that you're presenting. And I remember when I first started speaking, I would do that a lot. I'd have like bullet points and a lot of, a lot of text. And what I was really trying to do was just encapsulate all of the bits of knowledge in a, a little archive that could be shared with others, which is nice. Um, but it's so distracting and it's distracting for me as a speaker. I find that it's distracting to the audience because they're reading slides instead of listening to me. And it kind of, <clears throat> for me, if I have a lot of text that I'm trying to keep up with on the screen, I'm not very present. I'm not very present and able to just speak extemporaneously because I'm trying to think back to everything I wanted to say and did I cover it? Did I miss anything? So for me, uh, a benchmark for doing a good talk is that you can't get it from the slides. When people say, oh, send me the slides, I'll send them, but you're not going to get anything out of them. So instead, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll just create an easy-to-remember URL on my site um, where people could go and get a bunch of links and resources and you know, further reading if it's you know, that sort of talk. But the slide deck is really just, it's just um, illustrative. Do you make up the words that you say on the spot? So you're using the, the slides as a framework, almost like a list of topics. Do you just kind of make the rest of it up as you go along? Or do you, do you prepare your speech in advance? I prepare the general ideas, but I have a really hard time if um, I've tried being very scripted and it just comes off as flat. I stumble more because I'm thinking about, you know, following a script rather than, you know, just saying what I need to say. So um, I also I taught for a long time. I taught for eight years. And for me, getting up in front of a class and just speaking extempor extemporaneously feels a lot more comfortable than um, being scripted. Um, I remember. Do you remember that uh, talk that Wilson Miner did um, a couple years back at Webstock? Yes, I, think I do. It was called. When we build something like that, right? And I remember it made such an impression on me. It's just so well crafted and so well put together. And um, I found myself trying to take the same approach and I just couldn't do it. I just, you know, that's just not the way I talk. And um, I tried it once and had to, uh, had to rethink my approach. What are you doing, Jared? Are you, are you, I mean, I think you're just sort of famously ad-libbing most of the time, aren't you? No. I, huh? Very little of what I do in my presentations is ad-lib. It's, uh, the trick is to make it look like that, right? So I have a stage theater background. Part of the challenge of, of stage theater is to take something that's well-rehearsed 
and make it sound like it's living in the moment. Uh, so you you want you want your lines to come out as if you just thought of them in reaction to what was happening in the scene. This is key. The other part of stage theater is that things that happen on stage that you don't expect, you know, uh, uh, a, a fellow actor forgets their lines or misses a cue or a prop doesn't work or, you know, something happens in the audience. You have to actually pretend that that was always in the play, that that was always part of what was supposed to happen. And so... Uh, after years of training in that, I sort of bring that with me. Um, I create most of my presentation, most of my presentations start on a, a set of index cards. So I'm very old school. They don't start electronically at all. Uh, and I often, when I'm working on a presentation, I'll often walk around with the index cards in my pocket. And when I have an idea, I'll pull them out. And I'm constantly sorting the cards into a narrative. And I spend a lot of time sort of putting things on the cards and sorting them into an order and deciding that the order is not right, that I don't know how I'm going to get from this card to that card. And then I add stuff in and I move things around. And, and I do a lot with index cards. And, and so a lot of my presentations live on index cards for weeks until I then know what I want to say. And then I start working on slides. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people dive straight into keynotes and they're almost kind of doing all of their work inside the app, trying to figure out the structure of things. And I think it's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard yeah. to be working on the narrative and the structure and where the pauses are or maybe where the jokes are or whatever when you're concerned about the typography on a keynote deck. Exactly. And for me, like I workshop a lot of my presentations, so it's not unusual for the first time I give a presentation. So I have a presentation that I'm that I'm doing this year in a lot of places about um, metrics and designing and metrics. And the first time I did it was about. Four weeks ago at the UX Immersion Conference, or the first time I, I gave it its sort of opening night debut was at the UX Immersion Conference. But I've been workshopping it since uh, last September. And by that, I mean I've been giving it in some form to small audiences for that entire period between last September and uh, this April. And uh, so it's... It, some form of it has appeared in front of audiences probably 10 times. And uh, I record those and I, I go back and I listen to what I did um, in the early stages. So the first time I gave it, it was just a bunch of notes on index cards. So I was actually going through the cards in front of an audience. I had no slides. Um, I did it with a flip chart. Uh, and so I would draw things on the flip chart. Um and that's how I worked through the presentation. I had an audience of about 40, 50 people at uh, a camp in D.C. So uh, uh, UX camp in D.C. and UX, UX mobile camp in D.C. is the first time I did it. 
And, and then I kept practicing. And over time, the slides would start to appear. Uh, when I'm first working on a talk, I just have the slides for the things that I can't explain. So I don't have any word slides. I just have images of examples. And I put black slides between the images so that when, when I'm not talking about that thing, the screen just has black on it. And then, um, and then I'll come up with the next, uh, uh, thing I want to talk about. And so, and so I'm not completely constrained. At that point, I'm constrained by order because I have to do the images in order. But other than that, I'm not constrained with any sort of pacing or anything else. And then, uh, as I understand the talk more and more and more, um, uh, I, I start to add in more transitions and more, seg slides and and put in points that I want to take home. And then the last sort of things that I do are um, adding in what I call the tweet slides, which are what I want people to tweet during my presentation. So the sort of big points, I, I actually put those slides in the presentation and then I create summary slides for each section. So, so unlike Aaron, I do have a lot of words in my talk and, but my words tend to be, it's, it's because I know that if I do my talk really well, it has a life beyond my presentation. People take it and they share it with their coworkers. And that has to have some, some uh, legs to it to be able to share it with their coworkers. So I, I'm doing that. Speaking of the tweet slides, Aaron, have you done a talk wearing your Apple Watch yet? I have not. No, I just got it like two days ago. So ah, right, because I wore mine for a conference. I was at Smashing Conf in LA. Uh, well, it'll be a month when this thing goes out, and uh, I'd forgotten to turn off the notifications for Twitterific. So when I would say something, I don't have slides in my current presentation apart from just just quotations that you know go up on the screen and then fade away when I've when I've kind of referred to them. But uh, every time I would say something, you know, remotely controversial or hopefully funny, um, I could feel my wrist buzzing. Um, <laughs> instant feedback. It was. It was. It was literally instant. The instant feedback was was obviously, you know, well, would have been the laughter, I suppose, if I'd have been uh, if I'd have been telling a joke. But yeah, the fact that I came off stage and there was 165 notifications, um, so it obviously buzzed. So, but I didn't find it distracting. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking. If my phone had been in my pocket, I might have been sort of tempted to, you know, I don't know, not look at it, but. It was it was a, a less intrusive uh, way of getting sort of Twitter feedback. I thought that was quite funny. It's interesting. I, I take my phone out of my pocket uh, when I present, just because I don't want the the Twitters to be bothering me while I'm yeah. presenting. Well, talking about getting a laugh, um, I remember and he won't mind. <laughs> a, that wasn't even remotely funny. In <laughs> fact, it was slightly maniacal. <laughs> <laughs> I once took a class when I was doing theater. I once took a class on laugh. And so we spent a, 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 like three hours just practicing all sorts of different laughs. Let's not do that. Okay. But I remember, and he won't mind us talking about it because he won't. But I remember 
Jeffrey Zeldman telling me that you, Jared, you'd mentored him on a talk or you'd taken him to one side after one of the event aparts that uh, he'd maybe done a new presentation on and, uh, and said, look, I was timing it and you were like 10 minutes before you got your first laugh. Yes. And how important is it to get the laugh in the first? Is there a rule? You know, should you be getting a laugh within the first five minutes? How, how is this? How, how are you supposed to structure these things and why is it important? Um, it's not a rule that you need to get a laugh in the first five minutes. Um, some speakers, and it's definitely not all speakers. And in fact, it's definitely not all speakers. But some speakers need the first laugh to know that the audience is there. And Jeffrey is definitely one of those. I am one of those. It relaxes those speakers that fall into that category. It relaxes them because that's the first sign you have that the audience is with you. So putting a laugh earlier in the presentation is, uh, or even having a good opening joke is just a connection point for the presenter. But there are many presenters for which that is not an issue. And in fact, they, they just aren't comfortable because, you know, not everybody is, is, is naturally funny or, or feels comfortable trying to be naturally funny. So it's, it's not critical that you do that. It's not a rule. It's not like you've somehow failed if you don't have a good opening gag. But, um, uh, for some folks, they are just hyper, anxious. I am hyper anxious with an audience until they laugh. And then once I get that laugh, I am there. And I also, I time my, my, my humor. I, I, I try, for instance, I've had a presentation feels off balance to me. If I have a lot of humor in the front and then in the back, there's not much humor. But interestingly enough, when I'm workshopping, I don't, I don't put jokes in. Because I don't know what the jokes are yet. I don't like jokes for the joke's sake. I don't. I don't put in gags. I don't put in um, uh, animated gifs that are just trying to get a laugh that is not responding to the content. So I have to figure out what the content is before I know what makes it humorous, and then I add that in. So it actually takes me quite a long time. It's like one of the last things I do is actually get the humor in. I'm not a big fan of animated GIFs or GIFs, just there for GIF's sake, really, or humor's sake. Because I can often find it dis distracting. I've seen talks where the slides have been, you know, peppered with the, you know, with, with the animated funnies. Um, and almost the audience is kind of waiting to see what the next gag is going to be and not really paying attention to what the speaker's been talking about. Yeah, I, I, anything that's at cross purposes to the material is is taken out. Uh, I, I have no patience for it. So it has to completely support the story and the narrative and the material. And when people put in those types of things in their presentation, basically what they're saying is, I don't have enough confidence that this material is interesting to you, so I'm going to throw in random crap so that you stay with me. And that you shouldn't do at all. So if you're going to put humor in it all, and and not everybody should put humor in, uh, if you're going to put humor in, it completely has to support the the material. And I've heard great presenters 
uh, <laughs> present incredible stuff and not have a single laugh moment in the presentation. And it has been fantastic. So it's not at all a requirement. It just ha- you just have to have fantastic material. And you have to be confident in your material and not not decide that you ha- you have a lack of confidence and therefore you're just going to tell random jokes. You know, it's like the person who tells rand- jokes at a meeting because they're just not confident of why they're in the meeting. Mm. It's sort of annoying. Has Jared ever mentored you or given you tips on talking, Aaron? Quite a few times, actually. Um, Jared's one of the, the few people that... Um, I would ask advice on speaking from, um, one, because I, you know, I respect his knowledge and his craft and expertise as a speaker. Um, he's also, he, he'll just shoot me straight too. If, um, if something's not quite as good as I think it is, he'll, he'll tell me. So yeah, we've had, uh, a number of post conference dinners or, or beverages, uh, talking about, What'd you think? How did it go? Where can I make it better? See, I've never had that. I've always been immensely jealous. So go and listen to some music, Aaron, while we talk about you behind your back. But <laughs> I've always been re- always been really, really jealous when Jeffrey's like, oh, yeah, he took me to one side and told me to put the gags in. I'm like, oh, why was it not me? I think you, you helped a, a bunch of people at uh, around an event apart at one stage. I only do it for people who ask me. Really? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I will not give unsolicited advice. I will ask you officially the next time we're in the same continent. Yeah, and I take notes, right? So you have to ask me before the talk because then I sit and I take notes on the presentation and then we walk through it. Do you do it on video as well? I've got some videos of a talk coming up. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it off of video. That sounds cool. And then I can buy you some plastic crap, some action figures as a thank you. Yeah, I want action, man. I'll see but whether not I... the not the alien fighting one. I I want the Nazi fighting. That, one. I'll see that's whether... a tweet right there. I want action, man. <laughs> I'll see whether I can find you a 1970s action man. That'd be that cool, so right? can be misinterpreted. <laughs> I want action, man. <laughs> so we touched. Yeah, on... That's why commas are important. <laughs> so we touched on this earlier on. This whole idea of um, either ad libbing off. Uh, the narrative that or the pointers that you've got in a slide deck or the alternative of basically writing an entire talk out word for word in advance and then pretty much delivering it from a script. And this is what I do at the moment. And I've been doing it for the last couple of years now. Almost it started as an experiment because, to be honest, I always felt that I I wasn't giving the best talk that I could when I was ad-libbing. I'm not a very spontaneous speaker, um, unlike Jeremy. And I always felt that I could probably do things better and I would be more eloquent if I could plan what I was going to say in advance. So I started to write out chunks of the talk and then it became almost like an entire script and then for the talk that I'm giving this year, I even got the thing edited. I actually hired Owen Gregory, who's a brilliant editor, and he edited my talk for me. Hmm. Um, and Did he keep your voice when he edited it? Yes, he's incredibly good. He edited Hardboiled for me. Um, okay. So he knows my writing pretty well, and he knows what I like to try to say. And he's one of those brilliant editors Go and listen to some music, Owen, if you're listening while we talk about you behind your back. He's one of those editors that when you 
get a draft back, you can't tell what you wrote and he added. You can't tell where you stopped and he started. Hmm. So I got him to do this talk, and I think that I give a better talk because I have the script there. Um, and I've become quite, oh, I don't know, blow me on trumpet, but I've become quite skilled in delivering it so that the audience don't know that I'm standing there actually in front of a script. And I've One seen- thing that's nice about that approach, Andy, is that um, like when you speak, um, there's not a lot of filler or uh, ums and ahs and, and stuttering. And that's probably from having a script and really knowing that well, that it makes the, the delivery very focused. I think so. I think that I give a better talk now than I gave when I was kind of, you know, the hard-boiled talk, which was like, what, five years ago, five or six, four or five years ago now. I think that I could have done that a lot better and the narrative would have been better and the delivery would have been better had I planned it better in advance and had something to refer to. Um, but I've seen some, you know, I've seen some good and some bad examples. I mean, I've seen people um, obviously reading from a lectern. Um, I went to Jeremy's Deconstruct Conference in Brighton last year, which is a brilliant, brilliant event. And I would say that 80% of the speakers had a script and some of them were incredibly um good uh mandy brown in particular she was excellent um in fact i stole her idea for the way that she does slides because she didn't have any slides um except when she wanted to kind of illustrate something and then it faded away to black and then between um between sort of segues in her talk when she would drink a a, you know from a, a glass of water there'd be three giant asterisks on the screen almost like an ellipses Um, and then it would fade away and she'd carry on talking again very 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 slick Um, and I've seen people like Mandy do it incredibly well and I've seen people that do it where it's a little bit um, stilted maybe you know a bit over rehearsed even sometimes people say over rehearsed I will say poorly orated because Over-rehearsed implies that you shouldn't rehearse too much, and I don't think there is a rehearse too much. That's my theater training coming through. I'll accept that. But I I don't think you can rehearse too much, but I do believe you can rehearse yourself into a bad presentation style. And so you you need to be very conscious of how you sound. So, for example, if you don't have a director, I mean, this is the role of the director, is to is to listen and say that didn't sound right here's what you need to do differently if you don't have a director you have to self-direct and if you are not listening to what you are saying as you're saying it which you can't do while you're talking uh you uh uh you're going to fail so you have to record and listen and you have to decide does that sound like me is that what i want to say and a lot of it is intonation and pausing. Almost all of it is intonation and pausing. Uh, and some of it's making sure the words on the page are the words you would speak, which are not the same thing. I write very differently than I talk. For example, I almost never write funny 
So very few things you'll read from me will make you laugh. And one of the most frequent comments I get is that I've been reading your writing for a long time, and then you get, I didn't know how funny you were. And it's because I don't, um, I don't write funny. I don't know how to write funny, really. So, um, so I, uh, when I speak, uh, it's a different, it's a different thing. And, uh, you have to learn how to read a speech and you have to rehearse it, uh, uh, like anything else. I suppose and- you're right about the intonation because when you see sort of a bad TV presenter, they don't read off the screen like they would say the words in in normal speech you can right. tell that they are you know that they're all over the all over the place and i've found this i've seen this a couple of times with and this isn't a dig at americans but i've seen it with mainly with american speakers where things feel and i wouldn't say over polished but you can just tell that the thing had been um very well prepared it didn't feel spontaneous or it didn't sound as if they were ad-libbing there's a way that people talk when they are uh, almost when they're thinking about what they're saying. I mean, what I'm doing right now. There's, there's, you speed up, you slow down, you, uh, you give these uh, sort of thoughtful pauses in your in your talk. You you get excited about what you're saying. You you slow down for a second and say, well. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true, right? I mean, you you do those sorts of things and you have to build that into the way you deliver the speech for it to sound like you're thinking about it. This is you giving thought to this material right now. And and that's that's a learned practiced skill to do that. And people who read their speeches and and read them as if the words are are on a page and they deliver the whole thing at a constant speed and at a constant rate that that's just not how they talk no. most of the time there are some people who talk that way but but the vast majority of people don't talk that way and you have to learn how to how to deliver your presentation that way and then people will be shocked to find out you read it it's practice it's complete practice. And what I do now is, even if I've done this talk, I mean, I think I've given this current talk about four, maybe five times now. Um, and in the two days running up to the Smashing Conf in LA a, a few weeks ago, I did an embarrassing run through on my own in a hotel room three times. Like I literally stood and did the whole thing three times as a rehearsal, just so that I made sure that I didn't stumble over, you know, any particular words or phrases. Do you rewrite? Uh, not at that stage, no. Unless there's something that I'm really tripping over, and then I'll just go back in and change it. Right. Yeah, that's right. I was wondering if 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 you're tripping over words. I like to go into it prepared, and I'm not one of these people that sits there in the audience changing their slides five minutes before they want to go on stage, which is something no, else me we neither. can talk about. Yeah, me neither. How much practice do you do, Aaron? Um, I do a fair bit. Um, just basically when I practice, I'm not, you know, walking around saying it out loud. Usually I, once in a while I do that in hotel room, but a lot of times it's just me looking at the slides and flipping through them and having the dialogue in my head or just 
kind of running it through in my head. And I, I cannot sit and watch the talk before mine I can't because <laughs> my brain is just um, far too distracted um, if, if I do that. And then when I go on stage, um, I'm just not ready. I need to, uh, I need to go look at the slides and focus um, and get a little bit afraid. That's, um, you know, Prince said something that, uh, I, I don't remember what the question was, but it was something like, don't you get afraid before you go on stage? Do you still get stage fright? And he's like, well, if you don't get stage fright, then something's not quite right. And I found that to be true for me, that a little bit of adrenaline goes a long ways for um, just focusing your mind and being able to think through what you want to say. And Andy, that's, that's our prince, not one of your princes. <laughs> we are not yes. allowed to talk about your prince on this podcast because it's funny you just come back from tokyo Aaron. you've been with our friend satoshi well satoshi and i and john Alsop and a bunch of other people several years ago were in a karaoke bar in tokyo murdering purple rain and there was <laughs> video of such an event. Nicole Sullivan was there as well and uh, and a bunch of other people. So there was video of us basically killing Purple Rain in this karaoke bar. Oh. And I put it up on Vimeo, just you know, along with all the other junk that I put up on Vimeo. And yeah, about a year ago, we got a cease and desist letter from Prince and they took it down. Wow. <laughs> wow. It was that good. <laughs> uh, I guess no, I guess the purple yeah. one had some feelings about your performance. I I think it was either really really good or or really really good. Uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, hysterical. But no, it's funny. Um, this I suppose it's familiarity with the material, and you are obviously very familiar with that. I need to re-familiarize myself with it, so I do these kind of run-throughs. It, yeah, we talked about Jeffrey Veen earlier on. I remember over the course of about five years, I saw Jeffrey do probably five different talks that all contained pretty much the same stories. Right. He would always tell, do you remember the Maytag story? Mm-hmm. Um, or he would tell the story of how ice used to be chipped around the world. Yeah he would always get the punchlines exactly right. The pacing and the timing was absolutely perfect because he just knew this stuff inside out. I practice punchline delivery for sure. That's, that's definitely part of how I approach the material. And I, and I'm constantly refining. It's funny that, that, that when we talk about practice, we don't often talk about refinement. And how we go and, and tweak. We just sort of say, well, you know, we go in, in our hotel room and we walk through the slides or we, we, we think about the slides visually. It's funny. I have, I like, I have like different techniques for practicing depending on what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to get out of the practice. So sometimes I will, I will stand and give the talk. Sometimes I will, I play this game where I, um, I give the talk up until the point where I flub it and then I start it over. <laughs> and I give the talk up until the next point that I flub it and I start it over and I and I keep doing that. Um that's how I used to learn scripts when I was doing theater. So that's my sort of technique for for what what we called in the trade getting off the book. And then sometimes I just go through and just make I'll I'll look at a slide and try and guess what the next slide is. 
so that I know what the order of this narrative is. Um, so depending on what I, what I need to do at that moment, um, I practice different ways, but, um, part of practice is, is refining and, and how am I going to say that better? How am I going to say that faster? You know, the problem with my stories is I, I often pack my talks so that they go exactly up to the minute. So if I have an hour, it's exactly 60 minutes and I, I don't have a lot of slack in there. And if I start to tell a story wrong, then I fumble for my words and I go long. So I, I have to be very concise on, on some of my stories because some of them take two or three or four minutes and they, uh, they're very detailed. So one of the things that I do, and no, um, nobody else that I know of who speaks does this, uh, but this is an old theater trick is I create what's called a rundown chart. So I'll take a recording of one of my presentations and all the slides that are in the presentation, I create a spreadsheet. And in the spreadsheet, I have the the start time and the end time from the recording, which then automatically calculates the amount of time I spent on that slide, which then, then I go through and I figure out in order to get down to the exact timing that I need to have, how much shorter do I do that slide in? And I do all the calculations till I get it to where I need it to be. And then I practice it till I get those slides to that timing. And then I have on my presenter display, I don't usually use presenter notes, but in my presenter notes, I have that exact timing so that I can compare the clock where, where it's telling me where I'm at in my presentation with where I'm supposed to be. And I can tell if I'm ahead or behind. And so, so and nobody else is that crazy. I me. have never seen anybody that's, else. I, that's intense. That's intention to detail. <laughs> I thought I was bad because I actually have a, a, a blank slide in there, which reminds me when to drink three times in a, in, or four times in the hour. Yeah, um, I have my, I have my slides. Um, I have I have my where my drinking points are in the in the slides, but but um, uh, I used to do this horrible thing. I think there's video of me out there somewhere, literally uh, holding a plastic water bottle on stage and drinking from it whenever I you know felt like it, which was you know terrible thing to do. I never would do that now. Well, I remember you holding a martini glass in your in your hand. Well, funnily <laughs> enough, that was a, that was a gag, and it was it was fake, and um, it was actually just apple juice in the martini glass. But everybody really liked that, and that was the icebreaker. That was the the bit in the beginning of the uh, of the talk. Is my kind of equivalent right. of, of the gag. The one thing I did this smashing conf a few weeks ago was there was a Forrest Gump theme that ran through the whole talk, uh, the whole um, conference. And uh, the organizers wanted every speaker to make some kind of Forrest Gump reference. So one of the things that I did was I, I chugged or appeared to chug multiple bottles of Dr. Pepper on stage. Um, <laughs> so what I would do, because, you know, obviously that's what happened in the film. So I, would, I, I opened one so that the audience could actually see that I, you know, opened the, the bottle with, with a bottle opener, put it down on the lectern out of sight and then picked up an empty one and then pretended to chug that all the way down. Um, and the audience thought that I did actually drink 15 Dr. Puppets on stage, which I didn't. <laughs> it was all a gag. <laughs> That's great. There you go. 
but yeah, illusion kind of thing. I love that kind of stuff. Do you think that conferences should provide auto cues? What do you mean auto cues? You know the Obama thing. You know where you can look through, you can see your notes or something oh, on like oh, a transparent oh, teleprompter. Like, teleprompter, yeah. not an auto cue. We call them auto cues in the UK. Oh, um, neat. Yeah, you you see this kind of the the running script that goes down the uh, the thing. Yeah, you call them teleprompters. Do you think conferences should do that? Have you ever worked with one? Yes. And I really liked it. Not for a conference talk, but for something else. I've right. never used one. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that would be uh, – definitely wouldn't work for me, but it may be helpful to others. Because I just think that, you know, we're getting to a stage now where there's so many conferences and, you know, the bar is being raised all the time, I hope, in terms of quality. And certainly, and I don't think people would appreciate how much detail you put into things, Jared. I mean, that's that whole kind of rundown thing is just, you know – blows my mind it's a it does yes, it blows my insane. mind but <laughs> particularly when i've seen more and more people have maybe not a script but certainly kind of more extensive notes you tend to find them being locked to the podium at that point um and i like to you know walk around a bit i mean i'm not pacing around like a madman but i do like to kind of you know appear from behind the lectern every now and again and conference organizers they make it so bleeding hard sometimes because you put your laptop on the on the lectern and they've got these bloody great lips that are like six inches tall all the way around the side of the lectern. So you can't see your bloody laptop from across the stage. Um, yeah, I don't uh, – we don't use lecterns in our conferences for that reason. We use a, a, a cocktail table. And so there's, a, there's just a, a black um, uh, black cloth on a cocktail table in the front of the room. And the speaker's laptop goes on that, and we put it comfortably where they can see it, uh, so it's not off to the side. Uh, we don't want anything between the speaker and the audience. Sometimes I'll do it um, on the floor, so the 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 actual lector the actual table is is not on the stage, but in front of the speaker on the floor. But it the whole idea is that I can see my. Um, I can see my my presentation view, which has my clock and my next slide. I don't use speaker notes, um, but uh, and it's and I can do that without having to turn my head, really. So and I don't have to be anywhere near the podium uh, for someone reading their notes. The trick to a teleprompter is that it's it's technically complicated. Um, uh, you need to have someone who is is driving it because you can't it has to it has to slow down and speed up depending on on where you're at because the words themselves don't uh come out at a constant rate if you're doing it well and so uh it requires more staff to do this to do this right um, and then once the speaker goes off script for whatever reason, the dude driving the the teleprompter now <laughs> has a problem. Widening up, right? Yeah. So so it, it takes it takes a lot of work to to actually coordinate that, and you have to rehearse it with the person who's driving so that they're not surprised and they get a feel for the presentation and how you work it. So if you've got a if you've got a conference with ten speakers, that's that's a that's a lot of work. 
Yeah, I, I hadn't really I, thought of that. I thought that I know that you can get um, teleprompter software for the Mac or teleprompter software for you know iPads even. So I didn't realize that maybe there'd have to be somebody there that was literally driving it. You can those software will automatically scroll, but but it's at a constant rate. Though there is a there is some new stuff out now which actually embeds speech recognition. So it tries to recognize the text as you're reading it and and then adjust the speed that way. Oh, that's very but cool. I, I've never used that. But no, uh, uh, the professionals, when, when Obama's using it, when, this, when the campaigns are using it, uh, there's, there's a staffer who they've rehearsed with who is actually driving that speech. Interesting. Hmm. So I don't know whether you saw, I put a link in the show notes earlier on, but Kenneth Bowles, who I think we all know, Yes. He, I keep meaning to bring him on the show, actually, because he's such a cool guy. But in all these years, I've not actually spoken to him on the podcast. He wrote a few weeks ago a tips for speakers post. And he got, you know, widely quoted Jeremy linked to it and, and, and a load of other people. And I thought there's some really interesting things in there. We won't go through the whole list, but it was basically just a list of, of tips that Kenneth had put together. And I thought some of them would be worth talking about. Um, you know, the most important thing I think that well, one of the most important things that he mentions at the, the, the top of this post is just get your own gear, you know, bring your own laptop, bring your own charger and buy a clicker. Most importantly, buy a clicker, you know, not don't borrow one or use a mobile phone or something like that. Get a clicker that you are comfortable with and that that's yours. Um, and I lost mine a few weeks ago and I was absolutely devastated that I had to use somebody else's. Um, I'd lost the little, you know, the little kind of RF thing that, that plugs into the USB yeah, and I'd taken the clicker away with me. It must have fallen out in a drawer or a suitcase or something. So I'd taken the clicker, no bloody RF dongle. I'm like, oh, crap. And I had to borrow somebody else's. And it just wasn't the same. No. I've done no, that. No, I don't like oh, using other people's clickers. Yeah. So that, I think, is incredibly important. Um, you can, I believe, Aaron, control the Keynote deck from your Apple Watch now. But... Yeah. I haven't got that far. I have not gotten that far either, nor do I have that much interest because I think that'd be weird looking down at my, my wrist all the time. I want the progression of the clicker to reflect as little body movement as possible. So the problem with the big problem for me, well, there are several problems with the Apple apps that let you do it from your iPhone or from your watch. One is that it relies on the local Wi-Fi working. And particularly, yeah. I think it uses the Bonjour protocol. And the problem is, is that in a lot of venues, like hotels, those protocols are actually blocked because they don't want someone in a ballroom scanning the hard drive of someone else in a ballroom. So they just turn off the Bonjour ports completely and don't let that happen. So now you're, now suddenly you're reliant on this thing and you can't get the internets to work. Um, and then secondly, the, uh, uh, You've got this, if you have the phone, you've got this massive device in your hand that everybody can see. If you use an iPad, it's even worse. And with the watch, I haven't seen anybody try and do it with the watch, but I can't imagine any way that you can advance a slide without someone seeing uh, the body motion. And um, that to me is problematic. Uh, that 
um, uh, if they can see me advancing a slide, that's that's a movement that I do not want them to participate in. Yeah, it sort of breaks the magic. Yeah, exactly. So I use a clicker where it takes a very soft thumb press, and my slides just advance, and no one knows how I'm driving it. I keep mine in my pocket, and sometimes I'll be on stage with my usually my left hand in my pocket, and that's the hand that's got the clicker in it. So you know, I just I tend to put my hands in my pockets most of the time anyway. So it just kind of you know just fits with that uh, with that little shtick. Magicians use a um, uh, a knee uh, level thing where they just bring their legs together, and that will do whatever it is they need it to do. And, you know, start a music cue or uh, um, other things. Uh, or they have something in their shoes where they tip their foot forward and that does it. Um, that's the sort of a effect that I'm looking for. What else does Kenneth mention here? Run the lapel mic wires underneath your shirt. Yes, always. There's nothing more distracting than when you're walking around the stage than having two meters of black cord tripping you up. I was going to say, I really hate when conferences have the, uh, the Madonna mics that go over your ear and come up to your face. Um, I've had those things fall off my face in the middle of a presentation, and it just derails your mojo. Um, so lapel mics for the win. like those better. Yeah, the problem with lapel mics, I, I'm on both sides of this argument because I'm a conference producer. And the problem with lapel mics is that someone who's not good at wearing one, and if the if the audio people are not good at at putting it on right, um, every time someone turns to look at the state to look at their screen or something, and starts to talk, if they turn their head and not their body, their volume levels drop off because yeah. the gain is usually not pumped up too high, and you can't have the gain too high because then you get feedback. So the thing about the Madonna mic is that it's always in a constant location relative. So you can keep the gain at the same level and you don't have to ride the board um, from a production side. And so, so that's why the conferences prefer that. But at the same time, they, t there are, there are really good Madonna mics and there are cheap Madonna mics and the cheap Madonna mics are the ones that fall off. The good ones, you know, the professionals actually have them taped in place. So they have uh, what they call skin tape, which is a tape that's intended to go on your skin and not be seen. It's a matte clear tape and, um, and they tape it to your face and then mm. it's not moving for nothing. <laughs> I've seen those used but in Nashville. I've seen on Nashville yes. they use those type of uh, type of mics. Yeah, I mean that's what the pros use, and and uh, I mean they're called Madonna mics because Madonna wears them, um, uh, but they are um, they're they're actual they're, they're in the trade they're actually referred to as countryman because of the country singers all use it. Ah, that's and it's for the exact same reason. A country singer's got a guitar in their hand, so they can't use a handheld. And they are bouncing around the screen, the stage. So a lav mic keeps coming in and out. Plus, the lav is going to pick up the guitar, um, which you don't want to have happen because you're feeding that through a different channel. So you—that's why they use the countryman. 
Speaking of movement for a minute, because is this not part of Kenneth's list, but it's, I'm just adding one in because he didn't put this in. One of the things that I would say to, to speakers, do not turn and point or refer to your slides. You see people do this all the time where they'll literally turn around and point to something. Um, or even worse, they'll try to use the, uh, the little laser that's on the laser pointer, which nobody can see from the audience. It's like, please don't do that. Just keep your attention on the audience and don't turn around and look at your slides. That's interesting. I, I'm. Um, it depends on the nature of the presentation. I think that when I'm giving a um, a presentation where I'm deconstructing something on the screen, I will use the laser pointer. I will make sure it's a a screen where I can use a laser pointer. One of the things is that rear projection screens actually absorb the laser light, yeah. so it doesn't reflect it. So a laser pointer won't work on a rear projection screen. So you have to be cognitive of that. Um, but over time, if I find I'm doing that a lot in the same presentation, I will add transitions into the presentation that actually run that. So I don't have to, so that I don't have to use the laser pointer. I think it's okay to just vaguely gesture somewhere in the background, but not to literally turn around and, you know, and point to it. Um, but maybe that's just me. What else does, Kenneth have on his list here. Yeah, put your wallet, your lanyard, your phone, your watch into your bag and hide the bag out of sight. Yes, but most important thing, please, for God's sake, take your lanyard off. At Smashing Conf, again, a couple of the speakers went on stage with their lanyards reflecting the light into the eyes of the audience. Um, and it's, please don't do that. So a stage manager should take lanyards off people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everybody yep, knows who you are. Yeah. They know who you are because you're up on the stage. You've been introduced. They don't need to see your name on a badge. Yeah. No, and more importantly, if there's any sort of stage lighting, the badge will reflect the lighting. So you'll be randomly blinding people. So, yeah, please, please, please take your bloody lanyard off. What else has he got on his list here? Um, yeah, put your laptop into Do Not Disturb. I've seen this several times where you'll get notifications kind of sliding over the screen. Um, not so much on a Mac, because I think when you're in Keynote, when you're in presenter mode, it just stops notifications. But I've seen little kind of, uh, when people have been using Windows, occasionally you'll get like an antivirus warning come up at the bottom yeah. of the screen. Always makes me laugh. Yes. Yeah. Back up your presentation to Dropbox, USB, or both fonts and videos too. Yes, I think Ethan has suffered from this in the past. I, I got on that. Um, I Luckily, I... Uh, I had my presentation backed up to iCloud, actually. I had it on Dropbox, but I had it on iCloud. Um, I was in, um, I think, Czech Republic in Prague, and I was leaving the hotel to go to the conference to give my talk in the next two hours. And my bag was one of those fancy bags that has a side zipper where you can slide a MacBook Air in and out very easily for you know going through airports and things. And I had forgotten to zip that pocket and it fell out onto a marble staircase and just totally croaked. Um, but I was able to recover the presentation on um, someone else's laptop and still deliver it two hours later. Um, so it saved my bacon. I have had the same exact story. Uh, so I have, I have my presentation on... Um, uh, on usually on USB and definitely on Dropbox. 
um, fonts and all, but I also ha- carry with me a complete bootable version of my hard disk. <laughs> and so I can take anybody's Mac and basically make it my machine by booting off that hard disk. And um, through the wonders of Mac's ability to boot off external drives and um, and then run my presentation off of that. And I've had to do that a couple of times in my career. Wow. I think I've been very fortunate in that regard. I haven't had a catastrophe. Um, well, when you're in, speaking without slides, it, you reduce the tech value. Well, there is, there, there is that. Um, what else has Kenneth got on his list here, which I think is, is worth talking about? Um, cause there's a lot of stuff. People can just go and have a look at this, uh, this brilliant blog post. Um, here, here's one that sticks out for me. Q and A is awful. Avoid it if at all possible. And absolutely. Um, I find Q and A really, really painful. I'm, I'm not a natural at just answering questions off the cuff like Jeremy Keith or, or any number of other people. And, uh, I find it really, really painful. So I've actually said to organizers, look, if, if there's 40 minutes for a talk and five minutes for Q and A, I'm going to run to 45 minutes because, um, I just don't want to do Q and A. <laughs> uh, when I'm workshopping, I love Q and A. That's different. Because that, that's that tells different. That tells me where I'm missing stuff. Yeah, I love and, that. You're in a room full of 30 or 40 people. You can handle it, but not when you're standing in front of, you know, and, and there's context as well because, you know, you might have said something about, in my case, CSS Flexbox, and the guy, you know, asks you a question. There's context. But when you've just done a talk for 45 minutes in front of 400 people, you don't know what the hell they're going to say. No, um, there's a couple of things. One is I think most places aren't set up for good Q&A. So the problem is that when you have 400 people, Q&A can be problematic because they have no way of making it go quickly because everyone has to stand at a mic or there's some mechanic to it or there's one person running around with a microphone and so you have to wait two minutes before every question and there's these sort of awkward things where you watch the poor producer run around with their microphone. Um, uh, and the other thing is, is that a lot of talks aren't primed for Q and A and they don't do a good job of, of priming the audience. So you, you go and you give this very thoughtful talk and then you say, okay, any questions? And people aren't ready at that point. So almost always the first question is something stupid because no one's had a chance to think about what that question would be. And so when we do Q and A at our events, um, what we'll do is I will actually, if I'm emceeing, I will take the first question. And what I will do is, is I'll prearrange with the speaker what that question will be so that they know what I'm going to ask them. And, um, that way the audience has the time while I'm asking the question and that the speaker's answering it to think of what a really good question is. And it changes the whole dynamic. Um, you get you get a really sort of thoughtful approach to things. And the other thing is, MC. If I think a question is is silly or I think someone's going on, I'll actually interrupt them and uh, take over and and s- summarize so it doesn't get into a speech at the mic. And and I'll just cut them short, and and you know do it politely, but 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 cut them short in that regard. So I suppose the other thing I want you just to finish on, 
because we talked a lot about conference speaking and, you know, we, we do all of this. Not everybody that's going to be listening has to stand up on a stage in front of 400 people and, you know, maybe answer Q&A or do this kind of stuff. But there are situations in business, you know, in our kind of general working lives when, you know, we have to present something, you know, we have to pitch an idea to a client or, you know, we have to present a concept or something to people that we work with. Um, and I just think that this, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, that should just be incredibly useful for people generally. Um, everybody should learn to do a bit of this kind of stuff. I mean, do you pitch a lot internally or do you have to present internally at MailChimp, Aaron? Um, I definitely do present internally, but it's not frequently. It's usually to kind of summarize um, some some high level things that we're working on. But I'm I'm with you that presentation skills are so essential, even if it's just to a very small group of folks trying to get your message across. Um, people that tend to succeed are those that can communicate really well. Are you teaching this kind of stuff about pitching and presenting to students at Center Center, Jared? Oh, absolutely. Cool. Um, yeah, no, that's a big piece of the curriculum because uh, the nice thing about the way we've constructed this school is that uh, uh, 66% of the time, two-thirds of the time, the students are doing project work, uh, and all that project work involves presentations. So, so yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be presenting all the time i'd like to visit at some point i'd like to go down there and uh and see what center center is all about everyone is welcome to chattanooga to take a tour of the school we would love to have you well i've been to chattanooga once for the riverbend country music festival so i think that i might be going there again at some point that would be awesome but we need to wrap up because you've obviously yes. got way better things to do than than talk to me on a on a wet sunday afternoon so it's not sunday afternoon what the hell am i talking about <laughs> Talk to me on a wet evening. I have no clue what, what is happening here. I'll just leave that into the edit. People can follow you, Jared, on Twitter. You are JM Spool. How very formal. Yes, JM Spool, at JM Spool. And take a look at Center Center. I'll put a link in the show notes. And people should follow Aaron too, because he's Aaron, at Aaron, double A, double R, O N, or me, at Malarkey. To ask questions or suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz or bz, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Thank you. As storm clouds gather over Mrs. Rogers' garden, the Action Man gang assemble for the big parade. It's an impressive display of military muscle. And speaking of muscle, just look at Action Man's new fully posable physique. It's chest out and eyes right as the top brass take the salute. They know that whatever the task, Action Man with his dynamic new physique is ready for action. <laughs> <laughs>